right now on Matter of Fact. Hey, how you doing? Miami police are working the streets, looking to gain ground with their communities. So how you want me to help you? While neighbors are struggling to trust. When the police show up, we fear for our lives. And that's whether we did anything or not. Could their NBA team have a game plan for bridging the gap? We weren't going to stand on the sidelines. Plus, I felt horrible. Election officials across the country are being threatened for just doing their jobs. The threat um, said that they wanted to slaughter their family, including their children. What will it take to protect the people who protect our vote? And come along for a visit to the Brooklyn neighborhood known as Black Girl Magic Row. Why does it work? It's because there's a commitment to success. It's like, I'm going to do it. Meet the women creating opportunity so their community can grow and thrive. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Can the city of Miami give us hope that relationships between police and the community can be improved in America? It's been two years since the murder of George Floyd, which sparked protests and outrage against police brutality. Yet incidents of police violence continue. Powerful voices from lawmakers to corporate America to Hollywood have called for change. Enter the NBA's Miami Heat, joining efforts to help build better relationships between cops and communities in their city. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, shows us the challenges of bridging that gap. Hey, how you doing? Miami police officer Giovanni Cabrales in a brand new role as a beat cop in Overtown. If you need anything, just call us. The historically black neighborhood just northwest of downtown Miami. It comes with its share of pride and problems. Mental health, homelessness, and narcotics. The 32-year-old Cabrales says after the death of George Floyd, things here changed. We'll show up to a scene and there's about 30 people out there but no one saw anything. It undid all the hard work that we tried to put into the community. We have a sold out crowd, it's 19,000 plus. Nearby, Cabrales' colleagues prepping outside the FTX arena. It's home to the Miami Heat. The NBA team now jumping into efforts to bridge the gap between Miami police and the community. The first thing that came out of that aftermath of George Floyd for us was we, we knew we had to be about action. And the first thing that we did is organizationally, we made a pledge. We weren't going to stand on the sidelines. Today is all about relationship building. So the Heat inviting in Miami police and Quinton Williams, a former FBI agent and federal prosecutor. There was a brilliant person who once said, it's hard to hate up close. And this is what we do. Don't judge a book by its cover. Williams runs a law enforcement training program, bringing together cops like Giovanni Cabrales. Minority, gun, boom. And members of the community like Lamont Nanton. We bring the community in so that they can tell their stories and they can listen to the stories of the law enforcement officers. That's how empathy is born. The view is that they're definitely not a friend. You know, they are here to either arrest us or shoot us. Don't get in the back of that police car. Once you're in the back of that police car, the cycle has begun. Nanton is a member of the Circle of Brotherhood, a group of black men dedicated to solving their community's challenges. And how many people have had a negative experience with the police? 
when the police show up, you know, as a black man, you know, we, we fear for our lives. And that's whether we did anything or not, whether we are armed or unarmed, because we see that it doesn't make a difference. So now I'm begging the lieutenant, Lieutenant, could you please tell me why am I in the back of this cruiser handcuffed? Back at the training session, leader Quinton Williams recounting the story of how he, as an FBI agent, was mistakenly detained by police. When they let me go, they didn't explain anything to me. They just told me to go. I always say, you got to give everybody 20 seconds. I'm telling you, but I'm getting emotional. Both sides now getting their 20 seconds and emotions running high. Some police officers, they think because they wear their uniform and the badge, they up here now, and the rest of the people, they're down here. You being too nice in that situation could actually cause that guy to think, oh, that officer's too nice, I could take him out. While nearly half of the Miami Police Department has gone through the training, some say the community should be playing an even greater role. And according to the city agency that investigates civilian complaints against Miami police, those numbers have not yet decreased. I think if the police department in the Miami Heat were to reimagine what they're looking to get out of their goals, they will look at with more partnerships with community stakeholders. Lamont Nanton agrees, but after hearing from officers here, feels cautiously optimistic. One officer said that uh, one of the first things he started doing when he became an officer is he got out the car. <laughs> Something so simple as that, he got out the car and introduced himself. He went to the business owners, to people sitting on the corner. I think that's huge. That small little thing could make such a huge difference. So how do you want me to help you? A difference Giovanni Cabrales is now inspired to make, even if it takes just 20 extra seconds. If they want to talk to me the first time, all right, that's fine. Y'all have a nice day. I'll be back. I'll be back tomorrow. I'll be back the next day. I'm not going to give up. In Miami, for matter of fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. The Miami Heat is up for the Sports Humanitarian Team of the Year Award. It will be announced at the ESPYs on July 20th. Next on Matter of Fact, the midterm elections are getting closer, but ongoing threats have election officials abandoning the polls. Our election officials, again, are, are your neighbors, and these threats have a very, very personal impact um, on them and their family. What can be done to keep them safe? And later, we're shining a spotlight on an American first. Why this daughter of former slaves is being honored with her own statue at the U.S. Capitol. Matter of fact, elections are what make democracy possible. With November midterms on the horizon, local election officials are facing a daunting task, managing another cycle of divisive races while continuing to be targets of unsubstantiated claims of election fraud. Testimony at the January 6th hearings highlighted the unprecedented threats that are facing election officials. A March survey found 30% of election officials know someone who's leaving their job due to safety concerns. Liz Howard is a senior counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program at NYU Law. Her work focuses on election security. Liz Howard, thank you for talking with me. So that number, a third, likely to leave their jobs is 
extremely high and I have to imagine incredibly concerning. If you lose potentially a third of the people who are working on elections, like what is likely the impact of that? So primarily, and, and what's most obvious, is the loss of institutional knowledge. So not just with the back-end technical aspects, but also, um, you know, interacting with voters, um, being trusted community voices. So then let's go back to the threats. I know that you've been collecting lots of information and, and frankly, just stories of some of these folks who work on elections across the country. What are people telling you? They're really heartbreaking stories. Um, you've heard Maricopa County officials talk about the threats they've received um, in which the person sending the threat um, said that they wanted to slaughter their family, including their children. So walk me through then what's being done to address those kinds of, of credible threats. Primarily, um, election officials who do report threats, which is less than half of them based on the survey that we conducted earlier this year, are reporting those threats to their local law enforcement. And is there any indication that those local officials are actually holding people accountable? Because I would imagine that if someone's making a threat and no one is held accountable, then you know you, you basically are are offering an open season on people who are who are, are working on elections. Most recently, local law enforcement in Denver, Colorado, um, made an arrest of a person threatening Colorado Secretary of State Griswold, um, who has been very vocal about the large number of threats that she and her staff um, have received, in addition to the threats that the local election officials across the state have received. And there have been something like a thousand complaints that have been forwarded on to the Department of Justice. How is the DOJ handling it? What we've seen publicly is uh, two um, arrests, and most recently we saw um, a gentleman plead guilty um, to charges for related to his threatening an election official. So they're moving ahead and they're taking important steps, but there are definitely more things that the DOJ can do um, to help our election officials feel more secure. It's not completely unusual in American history to have election violence or even threats against electors. Is it different today? What do you attribute it to? You know, almost six out of 10 election officials believe that the false information being spread on social media makes their job more dangerous. You know, we have one out of six election officials who have been threatened just for doing their job. You mentioned some of the things that you think the federal government could be doing. You know, certainly election officials and election administration has been chronically underfunded for years. Um, and providing uh, funding to election officials is critical in the effort to help protect them. Liz Howard is with the Brennan Center. Liz, nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Soledad. Ahead on Matter of Fact, a tight-knit community of women is bringing their Brooklyn neighborhood to life. You bring your energy, um, your expertise, your, your brilliance. What's the secret to success for the businesses on Black Girl Magic Row? And later, her likeness is 11 feet tall, created out of 6,000 pounds of the world's best marble. How the nation is honoring a woman whose story has been left out of most U.S. history books. Black Girl Magic Row, a seven-block stretch of businesses in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Bed-Stuy. 
15 are black owned and 21 are led by women. The latest numbers show that small businesses employ almost half of the entire American workforce. The neighborhood is a snapshot of what's happening across our nation. And just like many communities, Bed-Stuy is seeing gentrification. A spike in retail and apartment rents is forcing both residents and stores to move. But the Tompkins Avenue Merchants Association, or TAMA, has created a bond strong enough to weather that storm. Here's a look at how their strategy is working for them. I'd like to welcome everyone here today. My name is Tisha Merritt. I am the president of TAMA and owner of the Bush Doctor Juice Bar. Today we will be discussing the organizing of Black Girl Magic Day. I could definitely have somebody come and do crafts. I'm Aisha, I'm the owner of Make Manifest. So maybe somebody could even host a workshop based on what they create. I am Priestess Yendez Neferatum, and I'm the owner of Ancient Blends Apothecary, where we are right now. I'm known for the plants, and um, I could see the front of the store just filled with plants and doing the plant workshop that I usually do once a month. I'm Khadija Tudor. I am owner of Life Wellness. My concern is that we do things for the neighborhood. We do put community first in Tama. It's not only about our businesses and us profiting, it's also about us giving back to the community. A lot of us, before we actually got to Tompkins Avenue, we were already business owners out of our homes, out of, you know, sharing spaces. We've been doing this for a really long time. I think I've worked with everybody in this room on some level to either fundraise, to open up doors, or they've worked within our process. Um, to keep us open as well. Um, and I think that may be the underlying vibe that is different than other places. During the pandemic, it took a longer time for the dollar to leave Bed-Stuy. It, it stayed in the neighborhood. The blessing that happened for a lot of our businesses was that people started walking, oh, I didn't even know you were here. And they started really supporting, so we got back to that neighborhood kind of feel. My name is Miriam Nicholas, and I'm the owner of Brown Butter. With gentrification, you just expect the owners not to look like us. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's what makes us special, and that's what's bringing all the attention. So I feel like what makes this space so magical is that even as a lot of people are being priced out, there are still people who are, like, they're here, they're anchoring the community. Because of the change of the neighborhood, the gentrification, there is a transformation that has happened, but there's a foothold of black women, black people who have decided to be here and fight the great fight. It's the individuality. It's the, the blackness. It's the, the Afrocentricity. It's the culture. It's all of that that we not only want to see for ourselves, we want to see for our families, and we want to see for the community at large. When the pandemic hit, it showed something that was already happening. We will reinvest into ourselves, we will pivot, we will do whatever is necessary to make sure that we stand. If you're going to stay within your community, then you have to fight like hell to create what you need for your own space, for your own existence to be able to stand and hold a foothold, because it's not me. It's not for me, it's for several people who are behind me that I'm working for to make sure that this happened. Coming up on Matter of Fact, from Maine to California, 
we explore a growing movement to help Native American college students achieve their degrees. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Back to Matter of Fact, the University of Arizona joins a handful of colleges and universities to offer free tuition for Native American undergraduate students. It's part of an effort to promote access for indigenous people. It will also help address the struggles that have been fueled by COVID-19. American Indian and Alaska Native populations have the highest poverty rate of any racial or ethnic group at 23%. And only a quarter of Native Americans over the age of 25 have an associate's degree or higher. All current students who are part of 22 federally recognized tribes in the state are eligible for tuition grants. Other public universities in Maine, Massachusetts, Michigan, Montana, Oregon, and Colorado are already offering free tuition to Native students. The University of California system is taking it a step further, covering the tuition for Native Americans in any of the 100-plus federally recognized tribes in California, whether pursuing an undergraduate or a graduate degree. Next. She advised U.S. Presidents FDR and Harry S. Truman and co-founded the United Negro College Fund. Hear the extraordinary story of the first black woman being honored by a state in Statuary Hall. Today, we're shining a spotlight on an American first. Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune was born on July 10, 1875. The daughter of former slaves, Bethune was a champion of education and women's rights and founded a college in 1929. This week, her likeness was unveiled at Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol. The statue was donated by the state of Florida. Our colleagues at West 2 in Orlando have spent years researching Bethune's incredible story. Here's a clip from their special report. Before Martin Luther King Jr., before Rosa Parks, before John Lewis, there was Mary McLeod Bethune. What she was born into and how she evolved and where she ended up, she continues to make history. That to me is the most astonishing thing about her going to Statuary Hall. Dr. Bethune made her mark on Central Florida first at the turn of the 20th century opening a school to educate young black women in Daytona Beach, she did it with a dollar fifty and a dream. I had one dollar and fifty cents in cash, but I had faith in God. Dr. Bethune had a way about her. Trained as a missionary, her power of persuasion was undeniable. Her passion for education, civil rights, and equality unrelenting. Dr. Bethune's work for the rights of black Americans broke barriers. Democracy is for me and for 12 million black Americans a goal toward which our nation is marching. It is a dream and an ideal in whose ultimate realization we have a deep and abiding faith. You can watch Chronicle the life and legacy of Mary McLeod Bethune at matteroffact.tv. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. We'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. 
Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.